Well, good afternoon, church. It's good to be with you. It's a privilege to bring God's word to you. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 22. Uh, when, you, when you get there, you'll turn to verse 15. That's where we'll start. And when you have it, you can say amen. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 15. I'm going to read the passage, and then I'm going to ask our, our Heavenly Father to bless uh, the reading of his word. This is God's word. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. This is God's word. Thanks be to God indeed. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed look up to you just as we sang. Our faith looks to you because we have no other help but you. And we need your help to hear your word. And we need your help to proclaim it. And I ask that you would give me grace uh, and the help of your spirit to preach your word rightly, to preach it plainly, boldly. Uh, and I pray that you would help your church that we would be formed into the image and likeness of your son. Would you sanctify us this afternoon? We so need you, and we ask for your help and your blessing on our time now. In Jesus' name, amen. Francois Fenelon. Uh, he was a preacher, a French preacher. He was the, the, the king's preacher in the 17th century for King Louis uh, Fourteenth. And, and one Sunday, when the king and his attendants uh, came to the chapel for regular service, no one else was there but the preacher. And King Louis, he, he got mad and he demanded, he's like, what, what does this mean? Like, what, why, why is no one here? And the preacher replied, I published that you would not come to church today. There was a you know, thing goes out and Tells everybody, King's going to be at church. He said, I, I published that you would not be there today in order that your majesty might see who serves God in truth and who flatters the king. Until that day, King Louis believed that the flattery was genuine. He believed that people were genuine in their attendance uh, to hear the preacher bring uh, whatever he was bringing from God's word. And we have a king in our text this afternoon who is approached with flattery. And he is not fooled at all. He, he is not, uh, he's not stumped at all. He is com in complete control 
of the situation and he answers a question and exposes the hypocrisy of those that are coming to him. Uh, this is actually the first in a series of three attempts to trap Jesus uh, in his words. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming up with what they think are trick questions that will get Jesus into trouble with his followers uh, or with the Roman authorities. And they're, they're pretty much happy with whatever one uh, comes first. They would prefer both, but they're just trying their best to, to sort of trap him. And we're going to work our way through each one of these. There's three of them. And we're just going to look at one today. And this one has to do with uh, taxes and, and, and what to do with them as, as, as followers of Jesus. To, there's a question of, of taxes and Caesar. And Jesus, even though they are temp- attempting to trick him, he's going to use this as a teachable moment. He, he hijacks the moment, um, as Jesus often does, and he's going to use it to, to say something um, that they do not anticipate and that is actually uh, it's revolutionary, what he says. Uh, and my goal is to walk us through this encounter. We're just going to walk right through the encounter of the text. And we're going to do this in three uh, really simple points. So if you take notes, here they are. The heart of the question, the heart of the answer, and the heart of the matter. The heart of the question, the heart of the answer, and the heart of the matter. Uh, let's just look at the setting here. So if we remember back into Matthew 21... Um, you may be able to flip there. You may just have to look at the, at the opposite page. In verse 23, the, the, the writer Matthew says, When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. Uh, and, and that's where he still is. He's still in the temple. So all these interactions are taking place in the temple where Jesus has just turned over uh, the tables and he drove out the money changers. And so it's important to remember that where they are at the temple. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to come back to that in a little bit because it's it, it really helps to shape what Jesus is is getting at and what he's doing. Uh, the people in Matthew 22 uh, verses 15 to 22 uh, are, are important as well. There's, there's two groups of people that are coming to Jesus. And, and they're really important. Um, the, the, the one we know of, the Pharisees, we, we know who they are. They're the strict, legalistic teachers of the law. And they actually, it's not them, it's their disciples. So they, they, they are the Pharisees in training, if you will. They're not yet full-on uh, legalistic uh, teachers of the law. These are Pharisees' disciples. And it's possible that the Pharisees are sending their students uh, to, to maybe be less threatening to Jesus. So like if they come, they're like, oh, it's the Pharisees, like these are the, these are the real dudes. But if they, if they send teachers, it seems like, you know, it's, we just want to talk. Now this is all, they're all shady. They're, they're, their motives are all off, right? There's also the possibility that they're sending their students to confront Jesus because up until now, every time they try to do this, he just makes them look silly. And he sends them away. He calls them hypocrites. They're exposed. They have nothing to say. And so if they send students and the students get exposed and they're made to look foolish, well, they're just students. Right. So we can save face. The Pharisees may be thinking, we'll just send the students to do this and we'll see what happens. Uh, Then there's the Herodians. The Herodians are only mentioned here in Matthew 22 and in Mark 3. the Herodians are very different than the Pharisees. The Pharisees in Mark 3 actually hold a meeting with them after Jesus heals a man 
with a withered hand. The Herodians are a political party. Their agenda is to advance the, the political and economic uh, influence of the Herodian dynasty, Herod. Uh, and his family. Herod has so ingrained himself into Roman culture and society with his wealth and his influence that Rome has sort of given him some sway. And, and these are people that are in, on his team. And, and they, make, uh, they make themselves supporters of Herod and all that comes with his dynasty and they're Roman sympathizers. It also means that the Jewish Pharisees and the Herodians are political and religious adversaries. So these are not people that would, that would be aligned with the Pharisees on many things political and almost everything religious, right? So there's, there, there's no like, other instance where they would be hanging out together and, and, and chopping together, right? This, this isn't going to happen, except they have one common interest. They are both threatened by Jesus. So if Jesus is the Messiah, he threatens the reign of Herod's family and he threatens the Jewish leaders. If he's the Messiah, it's over. Like he's healing people. He, he just came back from raising Lazarus from the dead. I mean, if this is if this is all real, he's a threat. So nothing unites these two groups except for the fact that they do not like Jesus. And for the Pharisees. They're willing to do away with all of their religious convictions and they're willing to overlook a whole bunch of stuff if it means that they can get rid of Jesus. So, so, so these are the same Pharisees from Luke 11 who are, uh, the, the, the text says there in, in Luke eleven fifty four, they're lying in wait to try and trap him in his words. And in, in the same account in Luke's gospel, he, Luke just plainly says it. He says, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So the, the Pharisees are, they're pulling out all they got. They got spies, they're, they're, they're sending people in knowing that they're being deceptive and they're out to trip Jesus up by whatever means they can trip him up. So Matthew tells us that they went and plotted. Now this is, we, we skip over it, um, sometimes we just read quickly through it, but it's, it's important to note that this is premeditated, this is planned, this is, they're very careful in what they're doing, they, they're not just going, oh, well just ask them this, they are, they're watching what he says, they're writing it down and they're going, okay, I think we can, I think this will get him, right, I think we got him now, and they went and they plotted, because, because even though they hate Jesus, they realize he's formidable, like he's not to be trifled with. He's wise. He's, he's, he, he's learned. And so they go and they, they really have to plan what it is they're going to say. And remember, the goal of the Pharisees is to entangle Jesus in his word. They're trying to trap him. So nothing that they say comes from a pure heart. Their words are wholly perverted. We'll see that in the way that they approach Jesus in just a second. Um, but remember, their goal is to get him to make a verbal mistake. And the only way that you can intentionally do that is by intentionally doing that. Trying to, trying to trick someone. Uh, but our Lord, our Lord Jesus is perfect in word and he's perfect in deed. He cannot be stumped. He cannot be fooled. He cannot be tripped up. Uh, let's look at their question. The heart of the question here. They start 
by trying to flatter Jesus. This is what they say. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Now, calling Jesus teacher here is not the same as the disciples calling him rabbi in John 1. Um, these Pharisees are not interested in sitting at Jesus' feet. They're not, it's not even the same thing as when Nicodemus, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus in the middle of the night in John 3 and calls him rabbi. He's actually interested in what Jesus has to say. They are just trying to butter Jesus up. They're trying to, they're trying to flatter him. This is sin. If you didn't know it now, if, if you didn't know before, just to tell you, flattery is sin. Romans 16, 18, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Jesus is not naive. 1 Thessalonians 2, 5, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. So not only is this sinful, this flattery, this, this, uh, this hollow praise, it's, it's actually silly. Because if they really believed what they said, if they believed, Jesus, you don't care what people think at all. Why would you flatter someone like that? Like, why would you flatter someone if you know this ain't going to work? Like, he might actually be upset by this if I try to butter him up. Let me just be straight with him. Why would you do that? The, the other irony in this is that the Pharisees, they, are the, they actually care very much about what people think. That's why they're doing this. They're doing this because their reputation and their prestige and their place politically, religiously, the influence they have in people's lives, all that is threatened. They care so much about what other people think that they're going to great lengths to try to trip up the one who actually does not care about what people think. Their flattery is also ironic because they're really getting at four things. Here's what they're saying about Jesus. Jesus, you are sincere. Check. We would agree with that, yes? Jesus, you are faithful to the truth. Yes? His name in Revelation is faithful and true. Jesus, you are fearless. You are no respecter of persons. Yeah? All true, right? And Jesus is actually going to show in a moment when he responds to them that these things are actually true, except he's going to do it in judgment of them. It's very simply, may God graciously help us to be like Jesus. Those who speak not to please man or her to live, not to please man only, but to please God. We, we don't live in the sight of men. We live... In the sight of God. We don't want to be moved by flattery. And the reason we don't want to be moved by flattery is because we know the truth about ourselves. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You, there's no way you can... You, Christians are once like, you can't flatter me. I'm a sinner. And Christ died for me. Give praise to God. The interesting thing about this here is that he doesn't give in to flattery and these, these, these empty praises as if he's someone who needs to be praised because he knows he has it. The praise is his, it's due his name. He's going to the cross and he's going he's gonna to empty a tomb so that people can glorify him. He, he, doesn't have to, he doesn't have to seek out power. He has it. 
It's his. He knows who he is and why the father has sent him. John 2, 24. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And may we, even if we should suffer for it, entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good because he judges justly saints. So this flattery is not going to work on Jesus. Uh, This flattery is the preface, though, for their big question. And it's an attempt to try and force Jesus to answer. Uh, It's an attempt to show him up. They say, tell us then. So they give him flattery and then go, tell us. So now they're like, we just we just praised you in such a way that now you have to answer. And. And they say, tell us, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not or not? This lets us know that they want a straight up yes or no answer. Or is it is it is it right? Yes or not? No, they want a yes or no answer. And we know that Jesus is not going to do that. So they want him to say yes or no. And they ask the question kind of like a reporter would ask a politician a question, hoping that they'll stumble over their words so that they can have something to print in the next day's reports. And here they're hoping that Jesus will say something so that he gets himself either discredited or best scenario for them, he gets himself killed. And here's why they here's why their question is a trap. The tax that the Pharisees are talking about is the poll tax of Rome. No one likes this. No one likes taxes. Most no one likes taxes. If you don't have to pay them, we, we would love that. Uh, but no one likes this particular tax. It's, it's the perfect thing to try to back someone in a corner with. It's a hot button political issue. This tax is so despised that in, in their view, as we'll see, is it lawful to give money to Caesar? They think they're giving money away, not paying legitimate tax. So certainly no one likes to pay taxes, but the idea is that you get something out of them. You get roads or you get goods or whatever it is you get. This is a poll tax. So no one really gets anything. It's not attached to anything in particular. It's simply money that goes from the citizen back to the Roman emperor. Plus, no Jew wanted to be under Roman government. So, so they'd be more happy to get rid of this tax. Even though it was only a small amount, a day's wage, that's what this is. Uh, Jews were really paying Rome now for the privilege of living on their own land. Roman occupied their land and now they have to pay the colonizers for for putting them out. And so you understand that this question has politics attached to it. This question has national pride attached to it. This question has religion wrapped up in it. And people are watching. We read the account and we go, Jesus and the Pharisees. But he's in the temple and there's lots of people there like, what's he going to say? And Jesus answers, yes. He loses an enormous amount of popular support. Many who are following him believe that he was the political Messiah of Israel. So why would he answer yes, pay the tax and affirm this tyrannical government that they believed he was going to overthrow? On the other hand, if he answers uh, no, he could be reported to Rome. That's insurrection. That's you're going to you're going to you're going to die. They are trying to alienate him in front of the religious people and in front of the government. And there's really no way to answer this with a yes or no answer without getting yourself 
into a sticky situation unless you're Jesus. Unless you're Jesus. What's amazing and sobering is that we will never be able to fool Jesus. You will never get one over on Jesus. He he will not be stumped. He cannot be stumped. you, You can hide things from lots of people. You can't hide anything from Jesus. There has never been and will never be a philosophical or scientific mind that can best him. There's never going to be a crafty manipulator who can, who can outwit him. He holds sway over all thoughts. And he sees and he knows everything. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I mean, that's why, that's why Nathanael's mind is blown. You weren't there physically to see me. What are you talking about? This is Jesus saying, I see all. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, we sung it earlier. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created. In him, all things hold together. Heaven and earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions, the dominion of Rome or rulers, authorities, everything's created from him and through him and for him. And he's before all things and in him, all things hold together. You cannot fool the risen Christ. They are trying to impale Jesus on the horns of a false dichotomy. Government or religion. And one commentator writes, he takes the horns by the horns and breaks them. Right? So let's look at his answer. But Jesus, this is verses 18 and 19, aware of their malice said, why put me to the test? You hypocrites. The word malice there is evil, right? Or or wickedness. This is the same evil that we pray to be delivered from in the Lord's Prayer. The idea is evil intent. And so the Pharisee's intent, he sees, is pure evil. There is no good in it. The idea also of testing here is used in, in the sense that you would apply a test to someone in expecting them to fail. This is why the King James actually, instead of testing, uses the word to tempt. And so to test God is to call his character into question by expecting him to fail morally. They are expecting the living God, the the, the Son of God, to fail morally in his words. And Jesus calls out their line of questioning as hypocritical. He says, you hypocrites. Why does he say this? Well, they're pretenders. But they're pretending in a couple of ways. First, they're pretending to admire him. You're a great teacher, Jesus. You're just so amazing. They're pretending to admire the God-man. They, they are pretending to do something that they ought actually be doing in genuine reverence and awe and worship. And they're pretending to show allegiance to Caesar. They do not like the Herodians. 
but they will use them if they serve their purposes. And so they are pretending at patriotism and they're pretending at piety. They are pretending with the people they brought and, the, and, 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 and they are pretending before the person that they came to question. Listen to the poet John Milton. He says, for neither man nor angel can discern hypocrisy, the only evil that walks invisible except to God alone. They're hypocrites. And everybody seems to be fooled except for Jesus. And ironically, again, Jesus proves that their flattery from verse 16 is true. He says exactly what's happening. He is sincere in his answer. You are hypocrites. That's an honest, faithful, truthful answer. They are, in fact, hypocrites. And he's fearless. He's no respecter of persons. People cowered at the Pharisees, and they would never mess with Rome. And he said, you're, you're hypocrites. Religious, political hypocrites. He says in verse 20, show me the coin for the tax. Now remember, they're still in the temple. He's talking with super spiritual people in a super spiritual building. And he, he's asking them, do you have any pagan coins? They're pagan coins. And they, it says they brought them a denarius. So remember, Jesus has just flipped over the money tables. They were just exchanging these coins in the temple and changing them out. The Pharisees are getting upset with him about upsetting the flow of money in the temple. And, and, and there might be even some money still on the ground. And Jesus says to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. I mean, that's it's really it's an interesting question because everybody knows the answer. It's like if I went in my pocket and pulled out a quarter, I wouldn't have to hold it up to your face to say, to get you to know who's on the quarter. You would say, George Washington. Everybody knows who's on the quarter. Everyone knows that, and everyone knows whose picture is on this coin. It's Caesar. But to Palestinian Jews, you have to understand that this coin is offensive. It's offensive because... On the coin, there's the image of Tiberius Caesar and an inscription that says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side, it says Pontifex Maximus, which actually means high priest. So this coin has an image bearer of God on it, declaring himself to be God and the high priest. So for a Jew, this coin is a violation of the first and second commandment. And the coin that Jesus says, do you have one? And they readily produce it as a symbol of their hypocrisy. So they're making all this religious fuss in the temple about a pagan coin that they use. They use it to pay the tax. They're exchanging it in the temple. So Jesus doesn't even have one with him. Do you got one? Do you want to go get one? We can get one. They're trying to trap him with something that they don't even take an issue with in their own daily life. You see the hypocrisy of the Pharisees? And in my mind, as soon as he holds up the coin, I mean, that's a mic drop, right? He could walk away, right? Hypocrites. Look where we are. Why are you bothering me about this coin? He could leave. He could just end it there. But as we, as we love to hear Pastor Frank say, that's not all. 
Let's look at verse 21. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now in their question, the Pharisees say, pay taxes to Caesar. The idea there is to give like you would give a gift. Okay? So they're basically asking, is it okay to give this pagan emperor money? Can we give it to him? But Jesus says, render, which is to repay or to give back. And so the Pharisees see this as giving money away. And Jesus is actually saying, no, you owe it. So you're in Rome. You pay the Roman tax. You use their roads. You drink from their aqueducts. You pay their tax. And I mean, this is Caesar's coin. His picture is on the coin. He made the coin. He gave it to you. Just give it back to him. It's not a gift. He's not a god. He's not a high priest. But his face is literally stamped on the coin. He must really want it back. Just give it to him. In other words, pay the tax. Now understand that socially, politically, religiously, this is difficult. Other people are watching. And Jesus' answer is it's flat out amazing. Let me just explain why his answer is amazing. So many well-meaning and God-fearing Jews who were watching may have been actually wondering about this. It's important to remember that Jesus, what is he beginning to do? He's starting to separate himself from Judaism, right? He's starting to separate himself. So this is how, it's not how we do this in my kingdom. In my kingdom, we, this is how we get down. He's intentionally separating himself. Now when he separates himself, he's going to separate himself unto death. It's going to end with the cross. But he's intentionally creating this divide. And, and people were there and they, were, they had to be wondering about this. But maybe they were too afraid to ask. The reason that they had to be wondering about this is because Israel was a theocratic state. That is, God is seen as the head of the state. And the human king, whether it's David or Solomon, is his king. And so the Jews had no theological rationale for why they should pay this tax to this pagan ruler. They have theocratic heritage. They, 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 they can't understand why this tax has to be paid. It bothers them. The only reason that they can make sense of them having to pay this tax is if they are under God's judgment. They've been taken over by a pagan king, a pagan ruler. Some, some even believe that Jews wouldn't even, some really God-fearing Jews wouldn't even bring the coin into the temple because it was so sacrilegious in what it said. So if Israel was under the reign of an enemy, it must be because God was, it must be because God was punishing them. But Jesus is intentionally dividing them and allowing them, allowing government and faith in God to coexist. So you understand, pagans would blend civil and religious obligations all the time. This is why Christians who, who, who are in Acts and in, in the early church are martyred because they won't pledge allegiance to Rome. It's still why Christians in many communist countries are, 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 are martyred today. And so Jesus understands that this kind, of, uh, this kind of statement is a turning point in redemptive history. Remember, he is a king. 
He's been making statements about his kingdom for quite a while. He doesn't take the side of the religious zealots. He doesn't take the side of those who want him to overthrow the Roman government. Why? Why is this statement so amazing? It's because Jesus, in this statement, is building a new community. A community that can live in a world run by a Caesar, or a king, or a president, or a tyrannical emperor, and they can give Caesar what's owed to him and still completely and wholly wholly fulfill their obligation to honor God. He doesn't envision a religious state where this is a problem because he's come to die and shed his blood for the sins of many so that he might purchase a new community. He's buying the church with his blood. And this is a statement about how the church gets down. In his church, the members can have dual obligations to the state and to God. And if the claims of the state and the claims of God clash, God wins. And his church that he buys with his blood can grow up anywhere. It doesn't matter what the government is. What do you got? What are they killing you? Because you won't, you won't believe in what, in, what they, in what they put in their books. You could still follow Jesus and honor him. It just means you'll die. That's all they can take from you. What do you got? Presidents? We can, we can be the church there. What do you have? Kings? We can be the church there. The church has thrived ever since the death of Christ and the resurrection in all different kinds of governments. Because it's not about who's in power in government, because of who's in power in heaven. What's what's also interesting here is that Jesus, in answering the question, clears up difficulties that probably perplex many honest and devout Jews. They were just probably afraid to ask. Like, there's many people who are probably going, is it really okay that I I have conscious issues about paying this? Can I actually do this? Is it okay for me to use this coin? This is a question of how do I honor God and and live in this government, in this oppressive uh, regime? And in his wisdom, Jesus exposes the hypocrites and he answers a question that many well-meaning, God-fearing followers, even that were following him, may have never asked. Jesus fundamentally changes the relationship between Caesar and the followers of God. It's changed forever. That's why people are amazed. Look at the wisdom and omniscience and power and might of King Jesus. He just freed people. He's getting at the heart of the matter here as we close. Separation of church and state is often misinterpreted as the separation of state and God, which Jesus is basically saying is impossible. Because everything belongs to God. So, so, so the issue with Caesar and the coin and the Pharisees is that they are trying to have authority independent of God. This is a fight for autonomous power. That's why they're trying to get Jesus to draw hard lines. It's, it's, really, just, it's really just the garden and, and Babel. It's just all over again. They're just fighting for how do we get take the power away from him and give it to ourselves. And Jesus says, you can't take the power away from God. So the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to draw a line that says, if you pay this tax, you side with the tyrannical emperor. 
And if you're on, on this side, you're on God's side. And Jesus is saying, I'm making a new side. And God is so sovereign over both sides. All things belong to him. And those in my kingdom belong to him, to God, no matter what the government is. Daniel 2, 21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Later on in the same chapter, he says, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hands he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens. Make you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. God is sovereign over all kingdoms. And the reason that there's kingdoms is because he set them up. The reason that there's governments is because he set them up. The reason that they fall is because he tears them down. I mean, just ask yourself, do you think that it's possible for the plans of God to be thwarted by an ungodly government? Do you actually think that's possible? He holds sway over everything. The interests of God's kingdom are not going to be negatively impacted because someone gives a pagan ruler a piece of money with this picture on it. And in fact, the rule of Rome is how the cross happened. If you need proof that God is sovereign over what seems to be the sovereign rule and oppressive reign of the land, if you want proof that God is in control, just look at the cross. Look at the cross. And no one, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. Not a Jew, not a Roman, not a Herodian. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And he sovereignly orchestrates the rule and reign of Rome that they're raging about to bring about his own death. Why? So that he could purchase a people who are free. Because your biggest problem isn't that you live under what you might think is an oppressive government. Your biggest problem is you live under the oppression of sin. And you need to be freed. And Jesus uses what the Jews are going, can we get out from under this, please? He goes, I'm going to use it to kill me. Because you are so blind. And then he's going to raise on the third day. If we need proof that God is sovereign over setting up kingdoms and tearing them down, you have a cross, a Roman cross to marvel at. The king of kings died on it. The king of kings was buried in a tomb and he rose from the grave. He's the king of all kings. Jesus is not saying that we can divide life into separate compartments so that God has nothing to do with this particular section of life that belongs to, to Caesar because he's sovereign over all life. We serve Caesar in a way that is honoring to God. We submit to our government in a way that is honoring to God. Holiness before the Lord is our chief concern. Listen to John Calvin. He says, no man should think he is giving less service to the one God when he obeys human laws, pays tax, or bows his head to accept any other burden. We are citizens of earth, and we are citizens of heaven. We cannot neglect either one. 
And while we are here in exile and far from our, our heavenly home, we're to remember that our, that our respect for government, Rome or national or state or local or, or any kind of governments that we're under, is one way that we do honor the Lord. Consider God's word for a minute here. 1 Timothy 2, 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. And then in Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. In Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. 1 Peter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be for the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now we read them now, but when all this was written and delivered to the churches, what was happening? The government was killing Christians dragging them through the Colosseum on chariots, throwing them off of rooftops, hanging them upside down on crosses. And here you see Peter and Paul go, submit to them. Pray for them. Say thank you for them. And Titus, don't fight over this stuff, please. Be gentle. What do they want? They want... He wants a little coin with his picture on it. Give it to him. Give it to him. We're the church. We're the church. And in a way, the gospel that we profess is, is quite political. Because Jesus is our king. He's our king of kings. He's our lord of lords. He sits in heaven with ultimate authority. All kings and rulers in this life, past and present, will stand before the king of kings and give an account for how they rule. But, but church, we are to be models of civil obedience wherever we can. Our charge is to proclaim Christ and the gospel and care for souls and take the Lord's Supper and baptize people who come into the kingdom. And the government has no hand in that. We can do that anywhere. We can thrive anywhere. God has been sticking Christians in all sorts of places and the church just keeps growing. Jesus doesn't take issue with, with government. Christians should be the ones going to great lengths to ensure that we honor those that are in authority over us in an earthly way. J.C. Ryle says this, if Caesar then coins a new gospel, then he's not to be obeyed. If it's between obeying God or obeying the rule of government, Peter says, <laughs> we must obey God rather than men. Our allegiance is to the Lord and our allegiance to Jesus does put limits on rulers. But we ought to be praying and laboring for peace in society, the right rule of government, decent, upstanding leadership, justice and the right to rule uh, to, to, for the rule of law to reign rightly because because that's what God what, what honors God. It's, it's God ordained that right be done. And 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 we want this to happen so that the gospel can go forth. I mean, what traveled on Roman roads? The gospel. It traveled all over the places that Rome had conquered, trying to, trying to, to, to grab a hold of their rule and their reign. And, and God goes, there's no my roads. 
I'm going I'm to carry the gospel on them. This means that we can't play the Lord against authorities that he puts in our place. We cannot, if you're in school, you can't fail your classes because you were studying theology unless you're going to school to study theology. You can't say, well, I didn't study for this test because I was, I was reading my Bible and then you fail and you, and you, and you disrespect the authority that, that your teacher has. We can't, we can't show up late for work and go, just, I'm trying to honor the Lord. I was praying for three hours this morning. I'm so sorry that I was late for work. You can't, pit, you can't do that because he puts them there for your good. Jeremiah 29, we seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So God has ordained all different kinds of authorities in our lives for our good. And if not, I mean, if you don't believe this, just think about what anarchy would be like. And at the end of the day, all governments, yes, are fallen. And all of them end up serving their own purposes in some way anyway. And they will fail us to varying degrees and with varying levels of intensity and, and consequence. The world is falling. But how we honor those that God has placed in those positions has much to say about how we feel about him. Just a reminder quick to kids as we close, obey your parents. Kids. They are God's gift to you. They're there to raise you and care for you and train you up and teach you about Jesus. And they're there to remind you that God gives good gifts. And the best gift that he's given you is not your parents. It's his son. It's the crucified and risen Lord. And you would do well to pay attention to him and turn from your sins and trust him. He is the best king and leader you will ever have. If you want to know more about that, ask, ask those that God has given to care for you at home. Mom and dad. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. If the government wants its change back, they can have their change. On the last day, saints, it's going to look like just change. Coin bear Caesar's image, the Pharisees bear Caesar's image, you bear, you bear, or you bear God's image. We are all image bearers of God. We will all have to bow the knee on the last day. And on the last day, a little coin to Caesar is not going to matter all that much. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. You know, they don't print Roman money anymore. His kingdom is forever, though. The, the problem, saints, with the Pharisees and the Herodians and all of us, apart from Christ, is, is actually with our loyalty. Who's, who holds the sway in our life? Who holds the seat of kingship in our hearts? Is this the kingdom that we are holding on to here, or are we praying for God's kingdom to come? Are we praying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and, and let your rule and reign, reign in this world, reign in me, and, and reign now. Free, free, us, free us from all things that would take our allegiance away from you. Notice that the Pharisees and Herodians marvel, and then they leave and go away. 
but not us. May it not be so with us. We are not to give to God. We are, we are to give to God the things that are God's. And what is, God, what, what is God's but our very lives? Our lives, church. And we're to marvel at his saving work for us on the cross. And we're to stay there. And we're to continue to marvel at it. And we're to pray that he would give us grace to do so. John 15, 18 through 21, as I close here. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the world that I said, the word that I said to you, a servant, is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. It's our job to make him known, saints. And it's our job to, to pledge our allegiance to him and remember that we are sojourners in a foreign land and that he'll return soon. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, uh, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that your kingdom is forever. We pray that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on you and that we would not be swayed by the things of the world. We ask that you would do this so that you might be honored in your church and so that Christ might be glorified. Do this, we pray, for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, church.